So Shahid, it's just me and you today for this episode of Remaster. And I want to say it's a special episode because it doesn't happen often that it's just the two of us and we get to talk about the games that Mike is never going to play anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mike and I get to talk about Pokemon and get to talk about the stuff that you don't care about. Uh, but now we get to talk about... I really wanted to have this conversation with you because we're going to be talking about Gran Turismo 7 mm-hmm. that you've been playing and we're going to be talking about Elden Ring, which I've been playing on PC uh, and to an extent on my new Steam Deck. So we're gonna gonna touch upon that later. But I wanted to start with you, Shade. Like Gran Turismo Seven. So this you're playing on PS Five, I, I am. assume. Yeah. Okay. So let me tell you about my experience with Gran Turismo. It's the kind of game that I've always wanted to get into, but I think I had sort of like a bad first exposure to the series when I was a kid. And that sort of burned me for, I don't want to say forever, but it burned me after that. And I never really picked it up again. So when I tried Gran Turismo 1 and GT2, that's on the PlayStation 1 era, mm-hmm. I was very young. I was like 10 or 11 and essentially i found that those games too difficult for me Mm. like i knew that i had some some like friends older than me they were like 13 and 14 that were absolutely in love with the game especially with gt2 but i just couldn't like i i was constantly failing all the driving tests and Mm. i just i couldn't know how to play the game and that sort of burned me later and so when when gt3 came out and then later on you know on ps4 i believe it was called gran turismo sport came out a few years ago i never really paid attention to it anymore but gt7 like i don't know maybe it's time that i check it out again and also it looks fantastic so i don't know please tell me please tell me more i guess well i started with gran turismo 1 i i was working at Virgin Interactive at the time as a producer. And Mm. I think I was in my early 30s, maybe. Mm. So I was already pretty ancient (laughs) compared to you. God, come on. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, by then I'd been playing a lot of video games. So I was, uh, yeah, I think late, yeah, late 20s, early 30s, something like that. And I, I saw the videos for it. My good friend, Tony Hines, who I worked with and who I remain good friends with to today, was always showing me the latest stuff. And he showed me Gran Turismo, and I thought it looked absolutely incredible. But, you know, they, they seemed to be like pre-renders. You know, all of the the, the mm. movies that were coming out were all pre-renders. But it turned out they weren't pre-renders I was seeing. They were actually... Um, uh, canned views that were done with the in-game engine. You know, they they can be created in a way where the detail is higher than they would be than the detail would be when you're actually playing the game. But nevertheless, um, it looks better than when you're playing because they can ensure that the draw distance isn't too far and so on. So you never get to see any pop in, and you can add a bit more detail as a result. It looked mm. amazing. Now. I actually have never cared that much for looks. And as a general principle, I think it's a mistake to go down the realism route for a lot of games. 
but right. n- but not all games. I don't think realism is a point of games. I think escapism is a point of games. That said, it's quite possible to achieve great impact as a result of enhanced visuals. But that, again, enhanced visuals doesn't necessarily have to mean realistic. So it was with that mindset that I approached the game thinking, yeah, it looks great, but how's this going to feel? So very long story short, I spent 18 months playing Gran Turismo, the first one, for two hours a day, every single day, minimum. Hmm. Um, And it is one of my favorite games of all time. Now, this, this is a surprise because a lot of people know my preferences. My preferences are for Twitch games. Why is it that a driving game is the odd one out. Why aren't there more driving games, for example, in my top 10, which include all kinds of games, but not a single other driving game, unless you count Super Mario Kart as a driving game, which I guess I do, and we'll come to that later. But what I loved about this game is what I realized I loved about many certain kinds of driving games. And it's now that I must confess to you that looking back at my history of playing games, I never recognized that I loved driving games so much of a particular type. So I, I'm going to very briefly tell you what I loved before Gran Turismo yes. in an attempt to perhaps can, you know, maybe work out, not convey, but work out for myself, really, why it is that I liked these games. And, okay. And the first was Super Sprint in the arcade. And the reason I think I loved Super Sprint, it was this was the one where you looked overhead and you had a, a, a racing track from an overhead point of view that fit on the screen. And you had these steering wheels and, you know, the, these little mini racing cars were like, they were so drifty and cute. And the, the, the feel was so responsive. I mean, it was nothing like real physics, but I loved that game and I played that a lot. Then there was pole position on the Atari 400. Okay. Again, by today's standards, really rudimentary graphics. But man, that was addictive. Obviously not as good as pole position in the arcade at the time. But I love this game. So what we have so far are two games of the, ver- of the early 80s that are kind of arcade but have some physics elements. Very little, mm-hmm. but mainly arcade Then there was Daytona in the arcades. And Daytona was the one that, for me, was a big leap forward where the the feeling of driving became a lot more apparent. Now, I know there were driving games before this that had a much more accurate physics model, but I could never connect to them. And the reason was the frame rate. I'm going to come to the frame rate in a minute. And, and why that's so important in a driving game and why these particular games were so pe- appealing to me. And this is why I didn't really like Daytona when it came out on the Sega Saturn. Everyone was excited about, oh, you know, Daytona, um, Sega Saturn, Sega, uh, and again, Sega Rally, also in the arcades, was beautiful, but when it came uh, to the I Saturn. I love that one. Yeah. I love that game yeah, in yeah. the arcade, yes. Okay. Se- Sega Rally was absolutely incredible. It's the first game where I really felt like... Um, 
the whole drifting thing made sense and the control of the car really felt beautiful. Again, high frame rate in the arcade, low frame rate on the Saturn. Big mistake. They should have dropped the detail. And that was when I finally got to Gran Turismo. Now, now Gran Turismo didn't have the greatest frame rate in Uh, the world. Let me ask you this first. Yeah, yeah. Were you a fan of uh, OutRun? No. Also? Mm. No. Too arcadey. Okay. Okay. I see. So as soon as you turn the arcade dial up to maximum, I was less interested. Which is really weird, even though I'm an arcade guy. I was Mm. an arcade kid, and I'm still resolutely an arcade guy. But arcade racing games didn't do it for me uh, Mm. when when they were too arcadey in style. Whereas games Mm. like Daytona, um, Sega Rally, they really did it for me in the arcades. I I put a fortune into them. So you were looking for that sense of like simulation, like that driving simulator. That, that, That was sort of something that you were looking for. It's a really great question. I've been trying to work out whether that's true. And I don't think it is. Because hmm. I didn't like Formula One games. Huh. I really okay. didn't like Formula One games. And I, I think the I think I'm beginning to understand why and why I love uh, Gran Turismo 7 so much. Because I don't want to dwell too much on the history. I, I want to touch on what makes video games great for me personally. And make this a bit more personal than I usually do. So there there are certain elements within Gran Turismo 7 that were also present in Gran Turismo 1. But Gran Turismo 7 takes them so much further because of the technology and because of the frame rate. So why did I play Gran Turismo, the first one, for two years straight? Now, I'm unlikely to do the same with Gran Turismo 7, not because it isn't a better game. It clearly is in every single way, but because... I'm 56, I have a family, I have a million commitments and so on. You know, there's, and and life is more complex anyway. There are so many more demands on our time. And there was no Netflix in 1998. (laughs) True, true. Right? And there weren't all these amazing devices. There were just one or two things and you just got on with it. So why? What, What is it about this particular type of game what kind of game does it represent and why do I think these games are important? Because for me, I'm going to touch on um, f- two alliterations, four that begin with P and four begin with F. So the first is purity. The thing I love about these games is that it is you, a car, a track, and a finish line. Now, yes, you can embellish that, but there is a purity to the problem that you face. And it is all contained, all visible, all understandable. Hmm. Right? The, there, There is a... <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because this is also one of the points I'm going to make about Elden Ring and from software games in general. <laughs> there, is a pu- there is a purity to the experience that it's, it's quite objective. This is what you're meant to do and this is what the game tells you to do. Now it's up to you to do it. Yeah. So yeah, I can relate. Okay. So there's purity... And then there's progression. Hmm. Now, the progression path is extremely clear. And it becomes extremely clear the first time you make any kind of progression. So, for example, when a track opens up for the first time, and I'm talking not just about Gran Turismo 7, I'm talking about Gran Turismo 1 and all games of this ilk. Suddenly you have a track open up. Oh, okay. Not only has a new track opened up, but 
It's now different racing line. It's now different set of problems, but they're the same problems I had before. There are just some nuances about how I approach this. So a new set of uh, inputs that I have to learn to manage in order to get a similar result, which is to finish as quickly as possible. And then there is the pursuit of perfection in that. Let, let me go back to Super Mario Kart, one of my, I say one of my, no, it's probably my favorite video game of all time on the mm -hmm. Super Nintendo. Mm -hmm. I played that again for, for two years, every day, two hours. Recognize the pattern? The old days before kids, you do whatever the hell you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so my advice to you, if you don't have kids, all of our listeners is get that video game playing time in <laughs> because it's gonna now <laughs> <laughs> do as much as you can right yeah so um the, the, what i wanted to talk about was super mario kart you could practice and you could practice your lap times and that's i would do that obsessively i remember with uh, my favorite character on the very first track uh the mario circuit one was Kong. And I would, instead of power sliding, I would bounce around the corners because it was the quickest way of, uh, when I say bounce, I mean jumping around the corners. And that pursuit of perfection meant that I didn't know anyone who was faster than me around that track. But that's not a surprise because I would practice that for an hour every single day. Um, and then I would go into the office at that point i was working at bits and no one would be able to beat my time on that first track um but simply because i practiced that pursuit of perfection you know it's a very manageable problem it's a very understandable problem and it's all down to your own personal execution and then the final p which is the plateau that you can get to a hmm. certain standard and then it becomes infuriating until you find a breakthrough. Now, the modern generation, what they often do is they'll go online, they'll look for people who solved the problem, and they'll they'll get the solution, and then that's that. In back in those days, and even now for me personally, I don't do that. I, I can't bring myself to do that. That's just not the way uh, I, I like to do that with video games because the fun is taken away. For other things other problems i will definitely do that now i'm going to go on the weirdest tangent you've ever heard in your life i'm now going to talk about touch typing my okay. other favorite game is to improve my typing speed <laughs> i use i use a site called monkey type and my current uh top speed is around 120 words per minute is that fast that sounds fast i, I don't know it's okay i mean it's pretty good but I see these youngsters typing at like 150, 175. Well, that's uh, faster than you. It's way faster. And then, <laughs> then I look at the monkey type leaderboards and the very fastest are over twice as fast as me. Now, will I ever be that fast in my life? No, I won't. Do I want to learn how to improve my speed? I mean, yeah, I could make my excuses here and say I've got RSI, I've got trigger fingers, I've had multiple procedures, surgery, and so on. But, you know, no, that's not a good enough excuse because I bet the people who've been practicing as much as they have to get the scores as they've got have now started to get severe issues and they're still fast. There must be something that they're doing 
because the problem set is the same. It's very much like a racing game. Okay. It's you have a keyboard hmm. and you can upgrade the keyboard if you want, just as you can upgrade your car in Gran Turismo, but it's still essentially the same keyboard. The keyboard is connected to a computer, usually wired, because you don't want Bluetooth, because it will introduce a delay. So what I'm saying is you have a managed environment, an understandable environment, and you are attempting to beat your fastest speed. Now, how do you do that? Physics. It's all biomechanics and physics, right? It's your eyesight. It's your read-ahead time. It's your, it's your understanding of the physics of moving your fingers, understanding uh, your time in motion and uh, finger independence. What about driving? How does this relate to driving games? It's the same. It's understanding moment to moment the input necessary in order to adjust the steering wheel, understanding how much effect that will have in the, the game world on your vehicle, understanding the handling limits in exactly the same way that you would have to understand the handling limits of your keyboard. In other words, how far down do you need to press in order to activate the switch? How far do you need to release in order to be far enough away that you could depress the switch again? It's exactly the same kind of problem. It's just more of a digital domain. Now, why is that a problem for me today? But Well, because in the PS1 days, I was not using a DualShock. It was an a, it was a, a D-pad. Yeah. Right? Mm. So my uh, my understanding of car driving games goes back to an era where the inputs apart from Super Sprint were digital. And so today I find there's a brand new world that's opened up for me in that I have to understand how to if I want to get the best out of my car, I have to understand that there is an analog relationship between my steering and the steering wheel. Now, to modern game players, and by modern, I mean anyone who's been playing for the last 15, 20 years, <laughs> right? That this is not a big deal. <laughs> but when you've become so ingrained, remember, two games, two years, two hours a day, Mario Kart and GT1, played entirely with digital left-right inputs. So this is a brand new world for me to learn. So what's happened is, on, on the keyboard, I've hit a plateau of 120 words per minute. Why? Because I probably don't understand the hacks the cool kids, the modern kids are using in order to get to some obscene speed. Hmm. Why am I not better in, at Gran Turismo than, than perhaps I could be? In other words, for example, say I'm doing a race and the, the advice is to use a car with a power value of 350 power points. That's how you measure how effective the overall... Um, power distribution, handling distribution, et cetera, is of your car. If the recommendation is 350, how come I'm only just beating the cars in that race when my car is set up um, and customized to have a power uh, points of 450? Mm. Because, because I'm not doing what I need to do in the most efficient way on the steering. So that's why I've hit the plateau. And that, for me, is a beautiful thing, my friend. The, the understanding that I've hit a plateau, not because I've reached my personal peak, but because there's a basic understanding and uh, an input style and uh, a technique that I lack, that I could learn. In the same way that in martial arts, you know that, for example, in Wing Chun, the, the most basic move is called a chain punch, right? Now, you when you first do a chain punch, right? a chain punch is three punches, one after the other. 
struck from the center line towards the center line. It's the most efficient and fastest way to deliver a punch, right? When you first start doing this, it takes like a week, right? right. And then, then you watch your teacher doing it. They have the same physiology. They have the same biology. And they are doing five sets of three chain punches in the time that you do one. Hmm. Do, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. You are yeah. you're the same biology. And it's exactly the same with keyboards. And this is why I love these driving games. Because driving games are the closest model you get to real-life physiological problems. Because the problem domain is so contained. When you hit a plateau, you know there is a way you can adjust your physiology to go to the next level. So right now, my issue with Gran Turismo is that my physiology is really tuned to digital inputs for the steering wheel. All I need to do in order to get to the next level, in order, in order to become a really good driver in Gran Turismo 7, is to do that. That is, is to understand how to control the, the analog steering wheel. It's so exciting for me, 56-year-old guy, to think that this is going to be this is going to be what takes me to the next level. It's also what keeps me going back to monkey type and thinking, yeah, you know what? 120 words per minute. I could say, yeah, in the old days, that would have been considered elite uh, secretarial typing speed. Now it's considered nothing. Why? Because the game's moved on. You know right. what? I, I got to give this a go. So it's all a game for me and I love it. Now, this is a great point at which you can tell me to shut up, ask me questions before I go on to the next no, alliteration. No, please, please go on. Just, uh, <laughs> um, I just, I want to ask you though. Yeah. I assume you play, or maybe no, I shouldn't assume. Uh, do you play in first person uh, camera view in Gran Turismo? Here's where I've got to be really embarrassing. So at the moment, I'm playing in first person. Uh, Gran Turismo 1, I much prefer to play in third person. Account. Why is that embarrassing? <clears throat> because I don't know how to change the view. <laughs> 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 I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> I, tried, okay. I tried pressing all the buttons, but then I just get distracted by wanting to play again, and so I just right. deal with it. But... There's a really good reason why it hasn't bothered me that much. That's what's going to take me to the next set of alliterations. Mm -hmm. So here are my four Fs, okay? The first thing is fairness. This is mm. the quality of driving games that I love. Because really, because the problem is very clear, because the results that you get as uh, a direct relationship to your inputs are so obvious, these games feel intrinsically fair. If I spin off at a corner, it's because I entered the corner too fast. Look, the game's giving me everything I need. It's telling me when to break. It's telling me what the best racing line is. Of course, I can turn these things off and uh, these driving aids off, as I did in GT1 very early. But I haven't turned them off yet. But if I spin off, it's entirely my fault. Entirely, because I was a bit too aggressive. And I know immediately that the game is not unfair. It is the most wonderful feeling, uh, the most safe feeling, that the game is utterly just. Hmm. So the fairness is a very important factor behind this game. This is one of the reasons why I think I prefer this type of game to, um, to something like Mario Kart. Because... I just, you know, sometimes I'll be playing Mario Kart and I'll be thinking, you know what, just get, get rid of all of the, um, all of the pickups. And I know that's heresy 
because that's mm. not Mario Kart. Mario Kart is contingent on the pickups. And the whole fun of Mario Kart comes about. But I think there's a trade-off. What they've done is they've traded off some fairness. In other words, if you're a brilliant racer, there will be some rubber banding, whether you like it or not. Okay? And you just got to suck it up and learn that you need to have the appropriate pickup to respond right. to a, a given threat. Okay? So that that really is just me being a bit of a bad loser. Because I love the racing part of uh, Mario Kart. And then when someone who's in second or third place gets me with uh, with a, with whatever shell, uh, I, I feel despondent that my racing wasn't rewarded. But that's just because I've come to realize that I prefer the type of game where chance is much less of an element. And I shouldn't be frustrated at Mario Kart with that. I still, don't get me wrong, still my Super Mario Kart, for example, is still my favorite game of all time, even with the AI that had. I get the feeling that had a fairer AI than modern Mario Karts, but that's a different story. So the next F is feedback. The feedback in a really good driving game, and note, I'm not saying simulation, I'm not saying arcade racer, a driving game, is absolutely crucial. And this is where GT7, for me, goes to the next level. Because GT7 makes the best use of the DualSense controller that there has been so far. Huh, okay. Every driving game I've played in the past, yes, there was Rumble. Rumble is not feedback. It just means something's happening. What happens with GT7 is you feel everything. And when I say everything, I mean, if you've made a change to your suspension, you feel it in your hands. Wow, you don't see okay. it on the screen. If you made a ch change to the... Um, to the clutch. You feel it in the triggers. The resistance changes for every little upgrade that you do. The, the vibration changes for every little upgrade that you do. So for the first time ever, you're not reliant on the screen to give you feedback. Now, why is that important? I'm going to come to that after I've finished um, my F alliterations. So the third, the third F is frame rate. For me, it's critically important that a really good driving game has the highest possible frame rate. And you could well ask, well, why aren't I playing on a PC then? Well, I'm not really as much of a PC gamer as I used to be. Uh, I'm very much, um, I'll, I'll play it on whatever, whatever's best. And I think consoles are really, really the, the best devices for uh, driving games. Uh, but frame rate is critical, and of course, having um, having a PS5 and then telling GT7 to play it in the best possible frame rate is what's giving me the the most feedback visually per frame. And in a game that relies on moment-to-moment -moment update of the car's position and orientation on the screen to give you very, very clear indication of how you're doing in terms of input, I don't think any other game is as critical in its requirement of frame rate for that. This is why I never liked the early simulations, because their frame rate was so poor. We're talking about 15, 20, at very best 30 frames per second, but nearly always they were 15 or 20. They were just impossible, because with a low frame rate, a simulation makes no sense. It really mm -hmm. doesn't. Your brain is doing too much adjusting. And of course, the final F, the, the thing that caps it all off, for me, it's the 
ultimate in fun. And I never realized this before today, that a driving game, a good driving game, is for me the very best game. I, I'm very surprised to say this, really surprised. But it just occurred to me once we decided that you and I were going to be talking about these two games we've been playing, just how important these games have been to me. Now, I wanted to talk about a really important part on feedback. Uh, you remember earlier on, I mentioned that there's something about feedback that is really important that most people seem to miss. Yes. In every driving game before DualSense, and I say DualSense in terms of mass market games, because, of course, you know that really hardcore simulation drivers will get the best PC, they'll get a driving wheel, they will get, you know, they'll, they'll get all of the attachments. That's different. That, that to me, takes it to simulation level. And by that point, you might as well be going for a track day. Yeah. If you're going to spend 2000 on your PC, if you're going to spend 500 on your peripherals on pedal, steering wheel, you might as well be going on a track day. It will be cheaper and you'll have way more fun. That's not for me. You know, I, I just want to sit in front of my PS5 and I want to play. But the reason this feedback is so important is because in previous games, all feedback happened through the screen. Yes, very obvious. So you do something, car changes position and orientation, there's some camera shake, there's some dust, there's some reflection, whatever. That's your feedback. Why is that important? And why is that linking to frame rate so much? Well, the reason is, with video games, as with the rest of life, there's a very interesting phenomenon that goes on. And this is something I learned only recently. We always thought that information that comes into the eyes is one way. Hmm. Did, did you think that? That light goes in, into the retinas, goes down the optic nerve, gets processed into the brain, the brain does an interpretation, yeah. and the same thing happens again and again and again. Apparently not so. Apparently the brain sends signals to the retina. Hmm. It does just as much going to the retinas coming back. I had no idea. And the huh. reason it does this is because it's preparing the retina for what to expect next. This is why magicians are able to fool us. And this is why if you have a very subtle change in your feedback on a display, it might be missed because your brain is expecting the previous bit of information with a small delta change. It does not expect the unexpected, right? It can be quite shocking and jarring when something unexpected happens visually. It really throws us, I mean, in, in a number of ways. But this is why, because of this phenomenon, because we are prepared for the expected and we are not prepared for the unexpected, sounds obvious, right? But we miss subtle feedback as a result. But, Here's the incredible thing. We don't miss it if it's in our hands. Hmm. For example, when you touch okay. a hot surface, how quickly do you move your hand? Immediately. Immediately. Your tactile yeah. sense is so hyper-responsive that the yes. smallest change in your hand will change your behavior. Oh, I see where you're going yeah? with this. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay. Whereas with the eyes, a really, really subtle change might be completely ignored. And yet Obviously. that's been the only mechanism for delivering feedback to the player. Also because we blink yeah. as humans. Yeah. And so we, we have a latency built <laughs> in. Like that's we, it. We, yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
Mm, okay. I see. So the dual sense is brings that tactile sort of immediate response in a way that no other driving games were able to do before. Yeah, totally. Mm. And that that for me has taken my experience to the next level. A final example. I was um I had a 1965 mini um which which was very special to me cuz 65 is the year of my birth. I know another another era entirely, but I'd been upgrading it bit by bit and every upgrade I felt and I cannot tell you. I oh, here's the other thing. Obviously in previous generations you can hear the change as well. You'll hear the rev range change. You'll hear the engine note change. You'll hear the exhaust change and so on. But now you can feel the changes. The very last change I did was I put um, some street suspension on that Mini. I felt it in my hands. It was incredible. I mean, obviously, I don't feel it in the seat of my pants. That would probably be next level, right? I mean, but by, by that point, I might as well go on a track day. But it has made my experience so much more enjoyable so much richer that all I want to do now is go back and play the game. Hmm. That is the most powerful thing for me. Uh, there have been many other things. And obviously, a, a driving game is not just about that core loop or that known environment. It is about the meta game as well. It is about the progression. You know, what are you doing? Are you adding courses? Are you adding upgrade paths? Are you adding cars? Do you have an economy? You know, all, all of this stuff. That's all fine. I expect that. That's that's like, what, what's that really awful term? That's hygiene. You know, right. if you spend 70 quid on a game, you got to have all that stuff. And that's the thing that keeps you going. But for me, it's not. For me, it's not just that. If you, if you just gave me, for example, going back to the purity of my own Super Mario Kart practice, all it was about for me eventually was how fast can I make Donkey Kong bounce around the first Mario track? Can I shave one hundredth of a second off? Or whatever it was, right? And and now it's the case of, hmm, what upgrade can I buy next? Okay, let's apply this upgrade. Oh wow, that feels better. Oh, this is translated to an improvement in my um, in my track time. Oh, it's improved the handling. I can feel it. I can see it going bouncing around a corner. I can feel it in my hands, cutting in um, with uh, with some harder braking into a corner later. I can feel it in my hands as well as see it, as well as hear it. It's such a powerfully reinforcing feeling that I think it takes it to the next level of, I, I hate to use the term engagement, but I am. I'm more engaged. I'm more deeply pulled right. in. I'm more powerfully immersed. I'm really attracted to the game in a way that I haven't been attracted to driving games in a very long time. This episode of Remaster is brought to you by Microsoft Lists. Are you looking for a new way to track and manage work and life from start to finish? Microsoft Lists is here to help you clear your brain space and get organized. And it all starts at lists.live.com. Microsoft kicked off a preview program to try lists of your Microsoft account or designed for small business and individual use. You can start by creating and sharing your lists with your work colleagues, your partner, maybe your soccer team, or even your neighbor. You might create a list of books or movies for your monthly meetings, track home improvement and important receipts throughout the year, or build out team rosters for your team or volunteer group. This kind of stuff is so great. Like I love that Microsoft Lists is focusing on all of these kinds of things. Lists aren't necessarily like, here's a bunch of to-do items. They can be like a 
list of content. Like it could be your upcoming games that you want to play, maybe upcoming multiplayer games that you want to play with your friends. All of this can be really easily tracked with Microsoft Lists. So one of the great things is at lists.live.com, you can start really quickly with their ready-made templates. So you can use filters and views to visualize your information. So you're able to get one list of a bunch of different views, and then you can share them as links to draw others in and work together. It's really, really awesome. You could do tons of lists. The ready-made templates save you time or start blank and add in exactly what and how you want to track your information. It's really flexible. Like you could use gift ideas, you could create issue trackers for your team. Uh, maybe you want to create some kind of progress tracker for a project that you're working on. All of this stuff's awesome, as I mentioned, for listeners of this show, something to track the games that you're playing, the upcoming releases that you're interested in. Really cool. Go and try the preview now at no cost. Go to your browser and type in lists.live.com. That's lists.live.com. Sign up, sign in, and track what matters most. Check it out and let Microsoft know what you like and any feature requests as well. So uh, thanks to Microsoft that has supported this show and Relay FM. Yeah, and it feels like it's not just a gimmick, right? It's just, oh, it's one of these games that is using the, you know, the latest gimmick of the controller. No, because like what you said about you change a part in your car and you can feel the change yeah. with your hands. It's not just that you're seeing the numbers and you think, well, maybe that works. Exactly. The the maybe you nailed it. Mm. Yeah, because that's always been a problem, right? Mm. Uh, with, with these sorts of games, you you because it's all... It's all virtual, right? You're mm. changing the suspensions. Well, I guess, you know, it's just you're swapping pixels for <laughs> more pixels or whatever. Yeah. But it doesn't have, maybe you can go, well, is it the part or is it me that I just, I drove better? I don't know. But feeling the change, now that's a completely different territory. Yeah, hmm. totally. I think you've almost convinced me to, to <laughs> buy the game, even though I think I'm going to be a terrible driver, but... This like the 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 things that really stood out to me, like the feedback and the purity, like those were our qualities that I appreciate in a video game. And also, I want to try this dual sense stuff. I think <laughs> it hmm, okay, and it's not so it's not an open world game either. Like you have a central hub, but then you can like it's not like Forza, for example, where you just drive around and it's open world and mm. there's like millions of sub quests, right? No, nothing like that. Mm. Okay, so you can play it, you know, in in a I don't know, in a thirty minute, forty minute play session, or maybe you can play for three hours and that's fine. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. And that's exactly what I did today. I had two of those sessions. <laughs> mm. Okay, all right, I I. I think I may be downloading this on PS5 <laughs> when when we're done with this. That was an incredible explanation of not just uh, GT7, but like driving games and this style of game. Mm. Really. And I feel like, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I feel like some of the things you said also apply to the game that I've been playing. So the game that I've been playing is Elden Ring. And I have a vastly different experience uh, than than you with, with this series of games. So Elden Ring is the latest by From Software. And you may know From Software uh, by the Dark Souls series and Bloodborne and Sekiro. Obviously, From Software, they go back in the in the in the early 90s with their games, but they really, you know, they really became popular with Dark Souls, with Demon Souls, and then Dark Souls 1. Now, From Software games are you know, are well known for being, well, most people will say they are difficult games. 
and they are challenging games. But I think something that something that I was listening to the Triple Click podcast and something that Mary Myers um, said really, uh, I don't know, it really stood out to me. Um, so Mary said that the, the Dark Souls games and the From Software games, it's more about the sort of this this negative connotation and this like gamer culture that has sort of uh, uh, you know taking place around them that that gives them a bad connotation really there's this especially if you go on places like reddit for example you, th there's this sort of like oh i'm a you cannot be a true gamer unless you finish a dark souls game like that is the kind of subculture that has that has you know risen lately on the internet over the past few years, and that honestly is part of the reason why I've always been put off by mm. these games. You know, like I don't know, I'm not really into the you know that sort of like bro culture. I'm a gamer. You cannot be a real gamer if you play on easy. You know, it's not for me. Like you said. Uh, I'm an adult. I got limited time. Yeah. I have a job. You know, I got things to do. I don't need to be told. I don't need that sort of, you know, the, my experience to be dictated by someone else's standards, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've always found that whole subculture of, of From Software games from the outside looking in very off-putting. But as it turns out, that is only a subculture underneath it. There's only a niche of people who think this way. Mm. And so, as I told you and Mike a few months ago, I really wanted, in 2022, to play my first From Software game. And I said to myself, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try. I am going to ignore this perception that I've had for the past few years of From Software games. I'm going to ignore, you know, what uh, the, that sort of culture on Reddit and on Twitter of like, you know, that gamery attitude that I really dislike. And I'm going to just try it myself and see what it's like. And not only am I glad I did, but doing this has made me curious to play more From Software games. Mm. Because what's so I'm going to talk about Elden Ring and the specifics of Elden Ring in a few minutes, but what I've discovered and what I've I think what I've quickly developed an appreciation for is that sense of fairness, that sense of I don't want to say objectivity because it doesn't really capture it, but purity maybe does. The thing is, these are challenging games. And Elden Ring is a challenging game and I'm told by friends that, you know, it's maybe more accessible than previous games, but I never played Dark Souls. I never played Dark Souls 3, for example, which is the most recent entry in the series. I never played Bloodborne. I never played Sekiro. But even Elden Ring, it's a challenging game. But not because it's, it wants to be a difficult game. The difficulty is not like an ingredient that is just sprinkled on top, you know? Uh, it's not like, oh, you add more difficulty just because. No, it's a fair game in that it makes it super clear from the first minute that this is a challenging world. It's a creepy world you are taken into. Monsters of all kinds and enemies and creatures of all kinds are out to kill you. 
and you are underpowered. Like in, in most instances, <laughs> you are underpowered, you are outnumbered, and it's just you, essentially. And so the game is very upfront about it. Mm. The game is, is extremely upfront about it. But the game also gives you an, an incredibly, incredibly important tool that I don't think it's necessarily the equipment or the summons or leveling up. The, by far, the most important tool that this game, and I believe previous games from, from software give you, gives you, is observation. The game allows you to observe the enemy, but also observe yourself. And it's all very meta, if you think about it. But the game within the game isn't about... I mean, sure, you can care about the stats and leveling up and changing your weapon, choosing a build, right? You can be a mage or you can be a warrior or you can be a uh, samurai. But really, the game is more about understanding the pattern of the enemy and understanding what your hands are doing on the controller and how you can improve in doing that. So in a way, it's very similar to what you just described. Yeah, yeah. About... As you say this, I'm thinking, <laughs> my goodness, what a surprise that we're yes. touching on very, very similar and very fundamental points about games. Yes. But in, in this regard, Elden Ring, and again, friends have told me that previous games are also like this. It's more similar to a rhythm game than you would imagine. Because it's all about learning that dance with the enemy, right? Mm. Learning how they push forward. Learning how they evade your attacks. Learning how they plunge forward with a uh, sword or a, or a, or a, you know, some, or maybe they're using a bow, for example. Maybe they're using magic. So learning all those patterns. It's something that once I realized what was going on, and I was approaching this all wrong at the beginning, right? I was, you know, pushing forward without evading attacks, without just, you know, I wanted to attack enemies because that's usually what you do in an action-adventure game. Like in a Zelda game, sure, there's some minimal pattern learning involved, but not like this. And so I needed to kind of reset my my expectations and also my habits, my gaming habits. That is by far the biggest lesson I've learned from Elden Ring and that I think I'm still learning as I go. That is, the game is difficult if you approach it like any other game. The game is not difficult. The game is fair. The game is pure once you understand what it wants from you. And what it wants from you is to understand the game itself. What it wants from you is to observe what is going on and adapt accordingly. And that is not something that we usually do in modern video games because for many reasons, one of them being, you know, you're asking people to pay 70 euros, you better, <laughs> you know, you better give them some help, you gotta give them some tips on how to carry forward. Um, this game, it doesn't have any of those like modern, some would say quality of life features. Uh, I mean, they added the ability to mark an NPC on the map in an update. Like it wasn't even available at launch. <laughs> you don't have a quest menu. You don't have, uh, you know, you don't have dozens upon dozens of cinematic cutscenes. It's a mysterious game. It's a, it's a creepy world that 
wants you to to learn as you go. And that was by far the biggest takeaway from me. So I, I really feel like it's been, first of all, like from, from this meta aspect, it's been a, an incredible experience for me because I, I feel like I've evolved as, as a video game fan. And I'm glad I did because it's, it's honestly, I've never, I had never played a game like this where it required me to stop thinking about death as an obstacle, like dying in the game. And you're going to die a lot in this game, right? But you don't die because the game is is evil, because the game hates you. <laughs> That's the thing. The game is not mean. <laughs> Elden Ring is not a mean game. Yeah. Elden Ring is like the very demanding teacher in high school that it's not a mean teacher. They just want you to understand what you're supposed to be doing, right? Uh, so it's a demanding game more than a challenging game. And so I feel like I... I, I like I was saying, I'm glad I tried this because it, I don't know, it made me appreciate this sense of, you know, playing a game that was made by people, you know, that sense of, of you know, this is a game that was authored by people and designed by people in a certain way. Mm. And so as a video game fan, I appreciate that component. But down to the gameplay itself... It's it's also like all of all of these things that I just said were also instrumental to making me appreciate getting lost in this world. And let me tell you, Shade, it's an incredibly massive, and I mean massive, open world game that somehow manages to be massive, but also very self-contained in places. Mm. You are free to explore whatever you want right from the get-go. I mean, if you want, you can walk to one of the later bosses and just be absolutely destroyed, but you can do that. And in this, from this point of view, it's kind of similar to Breath of the Wild, right? Right, right. I was going to ask, yeah. It, it learned, like, this is from software, like, absolutely taking away a lot of lessons from Breath of the Wild. But what I think this game does better than Breath of the Wild is, well, first of all, I mean, graphically speaking, it's it's a beautiful game. Mm. So, so much variety in the different biomes, in the different landscapes that you have. But also, the game somehow guides you and tells you what you're meant to be doing without telling you. And it's all very organic in the way that you discover this. For example, I like so many times I tried to do a boss and just kept dying and dying. And I knew that like, I think I know that I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to be doing, right? I'm learning the enemy attacks. I'm learning all the patterns. But that is the game telling you, hey, maybe you can go and explore a few other things. You know, you can discover a bunch of other places. You can explore some catacombs. You can explore some caves. Maybe you can do an optional boss, level up some more, you know, maybe upgrade your weapons and then come back. Yeah, yeah. And and you do that or you just, you get a sense for that as you go, Mm. right? And so getting lost and, you know, oh, I'm going here and then I guess I'm fast traveling there. And, oh, maybe you're just running on your horse and you you see a cave in the distance. You're like, well, I guess I'm going to explore there. (laughs) All of this without having 
a complicated UI like you may have seen in modern open world games. You know, yeah, I yeah. think of any Ubisoft yeah. game, for example. Oh, God, as I was thinking that immediately, you know. Most of the time, you're going to play Elden Ring without any UI shown on screen because the, the health bar, it goes away automatically after a while. Right. So most of the time, it's just you and the game. So, I mean, there's there's a ton to talk about here, but really, the thing that actually... Somehow, we didn't plan for this, but we ended up talking about very similar concepts in two very different games. That sense of, this is a different game than you are maybe used to. Yeah. Not because, you know, it's difficult or because you, you got some very unique monster designs, but because it's a lost art, maybe in a way, these days, to have something that was so clearly willed into existence by game designers, by by authors. I like to use this by authors. I really like to say this, that something that was meant to be in a certain way, that has a purity about it, that has, a, 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 like you said, a, a fairness about it, then you can either appreciate it or not. Mm. But if you do... I'm 50 hours into this game, wow. Shade, and I've barely, wow. and I've barely seen like 30% of it. Wow. I am in love with this game. So you're playing it on the PC? Huh. So, yes. So I, um, I don't know if you know, but I have a gaming PC now. Um, I didn't know I, this. Okay, so it's this happened like a like a few weeks ago. I I have this compact. I was looking for a compact gaming PC with really high specs. So I have a Corsair One. It's a compact like tower PC uh, that has the Intel Alder Lake uh, CPU in it and an NVIDIA uh, the 3080 Ti GPU. Mm. Nice. So this lets me do proper 4K gaming at, you know, plus 100 frames per second in, yeah. in depending on the game. So I've been playing Elden Ring on Steam at 4K 60. Elden Ring doesn't go above 60 frames per second uh, on, on, the, on the PC. Uh, but I also received my Steam Deck last week. And so Ooh. I have been able to, because of Steam Cloud, right? It's got the cloud saves. Um, I can pick up my progress anywhere I anywhere I am and I can continue playing on the Steam Deck. Obviously, on the Steam Deck, you don't play <laughs> at maximum settings like you can on a 3080 Ti on desktop. Yeah. Uh, but you can play at 720p because that's the display of the Steam Deck at high settings, so not maximum, but high settings at 30 FPS, and it's totally playable. Mm. And uh, I've been doing that. So it, it and it's also the kind of game that lends itself well, also to those portable play sessions, right? Uh, because you, like I mentioned, you can go do a cave or a catacomb, and it takes you like 30 minutes, and you find a, a bonfire. They're not called bonfires here; they're called sites of grace. And you save your progress, and that's it. So. Yeah, I've been playing on PC and it really looks beautiful at 4K OLED. But I've also been playing on the Steam Deck. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, 48 hours in, actually, not 50, 48 hours in. And I'm a level 115 or something. I, I have a lot of work ahead of me still to do because I've only uncovered like half of the map. It's a massive game that's going to last me for like possibly the entire 2022. Wow. So, I, I got to know, 
what made you get a, a gaming PC? So that's a good question. Um, well, okay. So there were a couple of things. Um, the first was I've been I had been progressively getting into the the world of Windows gaming because I uh, a, f- a few months back I got one of those portable uh, Windows handheld consoles. It's called the Aya Neo uh, console. Yeah, I know it's about like, that. Yeah, it's a Switch-like console, but it runs Windows. And so I had been getting accustomed to, you know, Steam and Windows anyway. But then I realized that I wanted to play... I I really wanted to play games at native 4K with the best possible graphics I could find on the market. And I, I realized that I really wanted, I, I felt like my 4K TV, my 4K OLED TV was, I could have used it more. And I really wanted to do like, why is it the modern consoles do not let me do proper 4K 60 frames per second all the time? And so once you start having these thoughts, the obvious route is having a big PC with liquid cooling and a real beefy <laughs> giant <laughs> GPU inside, right? Yeah. Um, so I can tell you, Shahid, that I've done something. Because now, because I, if I have this gaming PC now that is much more powerful than an Xbox or PS5, and especially if it's a Windows machine and Microsoft is committed to bringing on day one first party Microsoft Studios games to Game Pass yeah. across Xbox and yeah, PC, yeah, yeah. well, my Xbox is now redundant. Mm. And so I've put up my Series X up for sale. Uh, wow! Because I don't need it anymore. Wow! Uh, wow! 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 Yeah. Okay, so this is what I was thinking about because the reason I asked you um, that the question asked you why was because I was intrigued. Um, it, it occurred to me that you know, for for Microsoft, if they have this Game Pass offering, they want people on PC. They want the same people who have got Xboxes who may not already have a PC to move to a PC. It's a way. So for so the Xbox. Okay, so here's the thing: the Xbox Series S for me, and I know for a lot of people, I think we discussed this ages ago in Remaster, was for a, a way of getting the PlayStation owners who were completely committed to PlayStation, who were never yes. going to move away from PlayStation to dip their toe in the water of the Xbox world. Yes. Right? Great. But what about those Xbox owners who were in the Mac world? Hmm. How would you get them to move to a PC? Hmm. Via gaming. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that is... uh, I mean, obviously, I am not moving to a PC. But (laughs) still, still... But it doesn't matter. You're there now. But it doesn't matter. I'm using Windows. uh, Exactly. And they got you there now. You are now captive. Oh, that is a clever point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You know, you're captive. There will be other avenues. Now they've got the game passing. There are other services they could provide. It's always one thing that becomes the Trojan horse for a bunch of other things. I don't mean that in a negative way, by the way. No, no. Yeah. I mean that in a totally positive way, um, because I do I do think Microsoft are delivering astonishing value with Game Pass. And I think a lot of the decisions they're making in, in the whole development world are really promising. Like, for example, the, the cloud development, uh, the 
uh, ID at Azure that they yeah. announced at GDC. All really amazing developments. So I, I'm just kind of tipping my hat at their strategic insight. Yeah. And I mean, once you get into the ecosystem, it works so well. Like I signed in with my Xbox account, with my Microsoft account, actually. And, uh, you know, you download the Game Pass app and uh, I I was able to start playing Halo Infinite. Again, a much better performance than a Series X. You know, you got absolutely no problem with the 3080 Ti to do ultra, 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 ultra <laughs> for all settings. You know, yeah. 120 degree field of view. It doesn't matter. Native 4K, it doesn't matter. Um, but it picked up my progress just right away. Yeah. Because, you know, because of that ecosystem. So, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a, an aspect that I hadn't considered but yes, so what I'm doing now, uh, realistically, looking at the back of my TV, what I have is uh, the gaming PC, PS5, Nintendo Switch, and that's it. So uh, I don't need the Series X anymore. I am going to keep a Series S mm. at the beach house so that, uh, you know, in the summer, you know, the, at least I have an Xbox there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, at, at my in my apartment where I do most of my gaming time, uh, I don't need the Series X anymore because now the PC is, you know, it does everything that my Series X was doing, but better because yeah. of the higher performance. So, yeah, uh, I've been playing Elden Ring like that, and I've been play. I'll be playing many, many more PC games like that. And uh, I don't know. It's just uh, a lot of things have been changing for me in in my gaming setup this year. I mean, I got a PC, the Steam Deck. I'm playing from software games. Who knows? <laughs> I'll be playing GT7 next, maybe. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a time for changing, but it's a it's a great it's a great time for video games in general. You know what what a time to be to be a fan of video games. I I couldn't agree more. And I am now playing more games than I've done for a very long time. I, I got a confession to make. I mean, it's going to be public now uh, for quite a few days now. I got myself this really nice, comfortable chair in the shed. Instead of starting my day early and working, I've been starting my day early and playing video games before I start work. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And that is the first time in my life. Well, actually, not first time in my life. First time since I was oh, beginning video games development in 1982 that I've done that. That's a dark confession. <laughs> 